Welcome to the Annie E. Casey Foundation podcast, a monthly conversation focusing on how all of us can work together to build a brighter future for kids, families, and communities. I'm Lisa Hamilton, Vice President of External Affairs at the Foundation. I'm delighted to be your host, and I'm so glad you've joined us for a hopefully inspiring and interesting conversation today. The Casey Foundation is focused on giving kids what they need, strong families, vibrant communities, and financial stability. In these efforts, the Foundation is fortunate to work with innovators who develop, test, and implement solutions to help kids thrive. Each month, we'll bring you an in-depth conversation with one of these experts right here on the Casey Foundation Podcast. We know that for young people to succeed, they need strong families and thriving communities. A key indicator of a community's health is its safety, and without it, barriers to opportunity begin to grow. One of the most significant risks to neighborhood safety is gun violence. Today's guest is here to help us better understand community violence and possible solutions. Dr. Gary Slutkin is an epidemiologist, an innovator in violence reduction, and the founder and CEO of Cure Violence. He's a professor of epidemiology and international health at the University of Illinois at Chicago and a senior advisor to the World Health Organization. As a physician, Dr. Slutkin began his career working in Somali refugee camps where there were tuberculosis and cholera epidemics. He went on to work for the World Health Organization to reverse epidemics across Africa. Upon returning to the United States, he began to see gun violence as similar to the types of epidemics he had been treating. He has applied the lessons learned over a decade of fighting epidemics to the creation of Cure Violence, a proven approach to reducing gun violence. Cure Violence has been called a pioneering violence reduction model. The Casey Foundation has supported the City of Baltimore's efforts to bring the program to its west side communities, where it is now firmly entrenched. We're delighted to have Dr. Slutkin with us today. Hi, how are you? Welcome to our podcast. I'm very happy to be with you, and thank you, Lisa. It's great to talk to you today. Wonderful. Well, let's start by talking about how gun violence threatens the safety and stability of communities. Well, violence is really the blocker, the inhibitor of all progress in any neighborhood or city or country for that matter. So when people don't feel safe, they're unlikely to progress in almost any aspect of their life. I mean, for one, there's the deaths themselves. And uh, for two, there's all of the trauma, that deaths down the street or in your own family um, cause, which we know is devastating, um, causing people to worry about their own lives and having all kinds of trauma that interferes with thinking and um, interferes with school, interferes, interferes with concentration. School performance goes down enormously wherever there's violence in a neighborhood. IQ scores go down an average of 10 points and reading scores drop just for having been exposed to violence. And kids frequently feel that they don't really um, believe they're going to live. And so this is also inhibitory to um, 
proceeding in school, and it's a number one cause of dropout and all kinds of problems like this. And then, of course, people don't really use the neighborhood. They're not playing. They're afraid to be outside at night. And then the businesses don't come either um, for the obvious reasons of it, it costs too much in every way. Um, they themselves feel unsafe and start starting a business and insurance costs and everything else are very high. So essentially, I mean, the grass can't grow when um, there's a fire going on. And the most important thing to do is to remove the violence for any kind of a human progress or community development or any survival to really be occurring. So you used your background in public health to develop the Cure Violence program. Tell us how you developed the program and how it helps to address these issues. Yeah, I mean, your your introduction, I think, was very helpful. So, yeah, I'm, I'm an infectious disease doctor. I don't come from um, the world of uh, criminology or any of these fields that I really come from uh, having an experience, many experiences in preventing things that spread from spreading more, like tuberculosis or cholera or AIDS. And also, I learned a lot about behavior and behavior change in the course of doing a lot of this work in the field, especially with AIDS um, being sexual behavior, which is a lot harder to change than violent behavior. So I'm an epidemiologist and um, when I came back to the U.S. after being abroad for 10 years, I, the, I was astounded by the violence going on in this country. I really was not so aware of it, and I was asking people what they're doing about it and what there was being proposed didn't make a lot of sense to me in terms of the way I understand behavior. Um, in other words, punishment's not really a, a main driver of behavior. And... Uh, and also all of the problems, the social problems, um, exist in all kinds of other epidemic settings. So I just started to look at graphs and charts and maps, and I saw violence behaving exactly like the other contagious diseases. It clustered, it spread in epidemic curves. One event led to another, led to another, led to another, just like flu or um, TB or colds or any contagious process. So we um, designed an intervention that would treat violence as a health issue, very specifically as a uh, contagious health issue with interrupters and outreach workers, new categories of workers who could stop the spread. And, um, and there have been extraordinary results to this. And of course, Baltimore is one of the strong examples, but it's, this is working now in about uh, 20 or 25 cities and about 50 communities and even overseas. So this method of you treating, looking at violence as a health, contagious health problem and treating it with specialized health workers now is becoming more um, a standard practice. Could you say more about how the program works? You mentioned the violence interrupters. Explain a bit about how they help address this issue. Well, um, we have to imagine what's occurring every night in many of our cities and, and neighborhoods is that there's, there are people who are um, intending or planning or to shoot somebody. And, um, and those events are being stimulated by um, people having friends who think that that's what they should do and having grown up with it a lot. And so when there, all kinds of small insults happen 
whether it's uh, someone slept with somebody's girlfriend or someone owes somebody money or someone was just insulted, they've picked up the idea that they're supposed to shoot. And it's just something that got picked up by the brain. So the um, workers are uh, specialized workers. They're workers who have the, um, the contacts, the access to the people who are doing it. They're generally people who come from the same um, neighborhood, same cliques, same groups, same backgrounds, same families, same histories. And we find those um, persons who can reach those persons who are doing it and then um, hire them and train them to cool somebody down, to find out what's going on in the neighborhood and cool someone down. So they're out there, these interrupters, and they say, okay, what's, what, um, how's everything? Well, you know, this guy's really mad someone slept with his girl, or this guy, you know, someone smashed his car and broke the window, and he was going to go um, shoot somebody. Well, you know, nothing's happened so far. I mean, so the police don't care if someone slept with someone or someone owes somebody money or something. But the, um, the interrupters will then go talk with that guy. And, and the person who is talking with him, the interrupter, is someone who he already knows, and he knows he's an interrupter. And they may, uh, you know, listen, I know what I got to do, or they may swear at each other, but this guy has so much training and so much insight and so much experience that he can buy time. He can cool the guy down and say, um, you know, listen, I, I understand this is awful. He'll, so he'll validate his, everything he has to say, which buys more time. And then as he buys more time and does more validation of his complaints, um, he's able to cool him down and then gradually, and this may take hours or it may take days, allow him to see that it's better off not he's better off not to do it. And his friends likewise are better off not to do it. And then things get settled rather than another shooting happened or any shooting happened. And so this process of having neighbors essentially mediate conflict in the community is having tremendous success. Could you talk a bit about the reduction in violence you see through this program? It's, it's really amazing. I mean, just to add one more thing and thank you for that. The, it isn't just any neighbor. I mean, it requires a lot of specificity as to who the worker is. I mean, yeah, he may be, he or she may be a neighbor or be someone in that community, which they usually are. But uh, these are specialists like emergency medical technicians or AIDS outreach workers. These are violence interrupters. They're specialists um, in, uh, in cooling down conflicts. So the, the results on this are, and there have now been um, five and almost six independent evaluations, and um, between 40 and 70% drops in shootings and killings are what's usually seen. I mean, there have been three neighborhoods in Baltimore that have gone over a year without any killing at all, and these are areas that had very substantial rates of uh, shootings and killings. You know, these were some of the most violent areas in, um, in Baltimore. So there, there, there are several places where it, it goes down even more than that. And there's all kinds of very special things that have been found in the evaluations besides this 40 to 70% drop in shootings and killings. I'm, uh, retaliations 
in five neighborhoods in Chicago were shown to be completely stopped, like 100%. Um, people are helped um, in very strong ways towards jobs or school or um, getting out of the kind of gang situation. This is also measures up to the 85 to 97% um, range. And the norms ch are changing. I mean, the um, evaluation that Daniel Webster and Johns Hopkins did, of one of the first evaluation in Baltimore showed that people who were not even talking to just in the neighborhood are starting to change their, the high-risk people are starting to change their thinking about whether they would do violence. And of course, just like in public health, you know, some people who you're talking to are reducing their smoking, but then others in the neighborhood start to get it and start to stop smoking as well. So it has a very strong diffusion effect that helps the neighborhood more broadly than even the people who we're talking to. Those are really impressive results. I, I know that Cure Violence is in lots of communities across the country, and I can imagine that many of them have their own set of dynamics and challenges. How does the program uh, adapt to take into account the specific challenges in any given community? Yeah, that's a great question. And I mean, even within Baltimore or Chicago or New York City or New Orleans, each community is different. I mean, of course, there are mostly similarities. That's why the approach is adaptable in places even as far away as Honduras or, or South Africa. But even from one neighborhood to another within, say, Chicago or Baltimore, you, you have to go through, we have to go through a, a very systematic, what we call epidemiologic exercise of mapping out where the violence is occurring, where it's occurring the most, and what groups or cliques are involved? Are there three of them? Are there six or seven of them? Are they large? Are they small? Are there particular individuals who we need to be able to interact with? And then we need to um, go into all of those neighborhoods with the, the neighborhood community group and the health department and find out um, who are the people who are um, most credible and have the most access and go about a recruitment process and a training process then. So there's a lot to figure out in terms of the where and who and um, that allows us to guide where we work as well as um, who needs to be recruited in order to reach the people that need to be reached. Then of course there's always cultural and language and other issues and then issues related to you know, do you need four workers or 10, you know, and how constant, all these kinds of things. But it, it's a, you know, it's kind of a, it's a scientific mapping and um, design phase that um, the Cure Violence Central staff training team goes through um, in concert with the local um, uh, community. So the violence in many communities is often rooted in economic inequity and the disinvestment in those neighborhoods. How does the cure violence approach incorporate an understanding of inequity and disinvestment uh, as it goes about uh, addressing violence in communities? Yeah, that, that's also a really important question. So the, um, some of this is kind of chicken and egg, and some of it... Um, 
that you can deal with the egg without dealing with the chicken or vice versa. And uh, so what I'm saying is this is that um, the the violence is occurring mostly because of the violence itself. And this is not really what a lot of people want to know or want to hear. But if, if you go into um, very, uh, very difficult circumstances, and there's a researcher who did this in housing projects in Alabama, and you find that where there's poverty and there's inequity and the fathers aren't around and the schools are horrible and there's tremendous poverty and all of this, if the kids have not been exposed to violence and it hasn't been done to them, they don't then do violence. Whereas if they were exposed, the kids who were and the kids who had it done to them, they're more likely to do it and it's dose dependent. So in a way it's like flu, is that if you have horrible conditions and no flu, or you have horrible conditions and no HIV AIDS, then there, no HIV AIDS appears. So um, the conditions, you know, are important. They're important in and of themselves, and they are facilitators. But um, in, in these, um, for these contagious processes, the principal risk factor for them is themselves. And so that when you prevent violence, you prevent more violence, you prevent more violence. And then guess what happens is the conditions get better. Thank you. That, that's an interesting perspective of how uh, one relates to the other. Um, when we think about community safety, we often imagine uh, the police playing an important role in stabilizing communities. How does the cure violence work uh, interact or intersect with what uh, the police and communities are doing? Well, um, it's, it's a parallel set of interventions. So, um, and it, there are points of interaction and there's points at which um, the interaction would not be um, helpful. And in, in other words, so at, at the street level, there's uh, police who are doing what they do and they may, it may be important for them to be highly present when there's a lot of violence in a particular area. And um, at the very uh, uh, end of the, or the periphery of the model of cure violence, there's interrupters and outreach workers, and they need to ensure that they have maximum access and credibility. So they are not interacting with law enforcement themselves. They, they have a different job. They have two different jobs. I mean, the jobs of cure violence is to keep people from doing a shooting, to keep people, and in other words, to uh, keep people from crossing that line. It's more the job of law enforcement to do what it does when someone has crossed the line and a shooting has happened. Our job is to keep that shooting from happening and to keep people from crossing the line and then to move them further and further and further from that line. All that having been said, I mean, both are important both are uh, add to each other, um, and at higher levels, you know, it's worthwhile to talk about, you know, overall strategy. I mean, it's very, very common for um, in precincts or uh, districts for law enforcement to be calling um, safe streets or aim for peace or um, whatever cure violence is called it locally. And saying, can you, you know, can you prevent the retaliation? In other words, a shooting here. Can you guys go and cool everything down? 
and and then for us to say yeah everything's cool we've got it we, we, and or they police will say you know can you guys go over to the other side of the expressway and make sure everything is all right over there so there there's there's higher levels of there's cooperation at higher levels um, that because everyone has an interest in in trying to make the neighborhood safer but there's different there these roles are different so based on what you've learned uh, through this program and your experience in public health, do you uh, have suggestions of public policies that could better support violence reduction in communities? Well, it, the main thing is that the health sector has really been underutilized. So, um, I mean, public health has been one of, if not the most successful um, sectors in improving the life of humans historically as well as right now i mean as a result of public health i mean life expectancies are longer children are lo no longer dying when they're very young you know there's water and the water is cleaner sanitation is cleaner the air is cleaner um leprosy uh has gone plague have gone into the past all kinds of Epidemic diseases have gone into the past because of public health. Smoking is going into the past. So the but for for some reason this particular problem, which is obviously a behavioral contagious behavioral problem and a health problem of the people who are both doing it and had it done to them, the health sector is is working at about a hundredth of the capacity or that it can. So the main thing is activating the health departments activating the hospitals and health centers to be doing their parts of this and and frankly to get money into the health sector so that um, we can have more interrupters and outreach workers and cure violence like models but there's much more to it than that there's all kinds of other aspects of the full public health approach that can be applied and i think when this is done when these policies and practices are changed and the um, health sector is more actively able to do what it can do, then you're going to really see the communities being um, healthier and safer as a result of, um, you know, healthier behaviors, the health people doing basically it's bread and butter, preventing spread, changing behaviors, and so on. Well, that's wonderful advice. Thank you so much for your work, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Lisa. It's wonderful being with you and your listeners. And I want to thank our listeners for joining as well. If you've enjoyed today's conversation, rate our podcast on iTunes to help others find us. To learn more about our podcast and for show notes, visit our website, aecf.org. And follow the Casey Foundation on Twitter at AECF News. Until next time, I wish all of America's kids and all of you a bright future.